welcome to the Wesley Memorial Podcast. Join us this Sunday at 1225 Chestnut Drive in High Point. Visit us on the web at wesleymemorial.org. Now here is this week's message. Okay, uh, we're going to really begin at chapter 2, but I'm going to take you back to a little piece of chapter 1 by introduction. In chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, we have uh, seven letters. You're probably not shocked by the number seven. We have seven letters or seven edicts. Perhaps the best phrase is seven prophetic oracles uh, that come from Jesus to seven, seven churches that were existing in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, western Turkey, uh, in John's day. These would have been seven churches of which John would have been very familiar. Uh, some people say maybe he had oversight Bishop, He is oversight of all those seven churches. There certainly were more than seven churches established in the Christian faith uh, by the end of the first century in Asia Minor, uh, ancient Turkey. Uh, but of course there are seven chosen because and we've already looked at this when we went through the first chapter. Seven means complete or perfection. So by him addressing seven churches, he's really addressing all churches. He is addressing the complete church which you'll see that um, in each letter, I'll point it out to you. It's obvious what he's writing is meant to be read by all churches and what he's writing addresses all churches. And what I encourage you to look for as we go through the seven letters is find your church. Find some of the situations in your present day church in the letters. In all seven letters, almost every possible situation, uh, spiritual situation, Uh, regarding the life of a congregation is going to be addressed. Uh, These are seven churches, seven very different churches with seven very different um, issues going on. Some of them very much connected. But it's fun to look at these seven churches because these were seven actual churches and actual cities uh, with actual people that existed at the end of the first century um, when John was on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, Before we get to chapter 2, Look real quickly back in chapter 1, because this is the piece of chapter 1 that's going to be carried over into every one of these seven letters. I'll show you how in a moment. But for the time being, go back to chapter 1, verse 12. You've looked at this before. We've looked at it before. This is the first vision that occurs in the book of Revelation. It's a vision of the exalted Jesus. And if you finish our time together in the book of Revelation in May, if you finish our time together and your view of Jesus has not become more exalted, you've just missed the whole point of being here. Uh, It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a revealing of who Jesus is in all of his present day, present state, exalted status. It's all about Jesus being at the center of the universe, Jesus being on the throne of the universe. That's why you'll keep seeing and hearing references to thrones. You'll hear references to to God and the Lamb, Jesus, on the throne. So uh, you need to keep in the forefront of everything we're looking at. It's hard not to do this in the book of Revelation, but you need to keep in the forefront of everything we're looking at, this exalted status of Jesus. My suspicion is every one of us here in the room needs a better picture of the exalted status of Jesus. He's not Jesus meek and mild. For God's sake, literally. 
Don't call him the man upstairs. That sounds like a decrepit landlord. You make sure you, you, you have an exalted view of Jesus that is getting more and more and more exalted with every passing day. Uh, the more exalted your view of Jesus, the easier it will be for you to um, see Jesus, receive Jesus as your Lord in the fullness of that word. That's why the book of Revelation, in its first vision, presents an exalted vision of Jesus. I uh, just want you to see it again because it's going to get repeated piece by piece in the seven letters. So, Revelation 1, chapter 12. John speaking. Then I turned to see the voice. You don't always see a voice, but in the book of Revelation you do. He turned to see a voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands. Those are the seven churches. He's explained that to you. We're getting ready to see the seven golden lampstands when we go into chapters 2 and chapter 3 with the seven churches. He sees the seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So here this exalted Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. He's in the midst of the churches. It should not surprise you, Jesus knows intimately what's going on in Jesus' churches for every one of our congregations. And he's the one we're trying to please, no one else. And he sees us. He sees us better than we see ourselves. He's in our midst. He's in our midst, according to the book of Revelation, as both Redeemer, Savior, and Judge. And you'll see that throughout the book of Revelation. He's in the middle of his churches. This person in the midst of the lapstands is one like the Son of Man. Just another word about Son of Man. If you go back to the book of Daniel, which... Uh, in many ways is, is very much a basis, like some other key texts in the Hebrew Bible, for the book of Revelation, uh, you will see that you will encounter a son of man. You will see the son of man is an exalted heavenly agent of God who receives authority from God, dominion from God, in order for um, the son of man in Daniel to exercise dominion. Uh, and create the kingdom of God. So in the book of Daniel, you see two characters. You see the Son of Man receiving power and dominion from the Ancient of Days. Now hold on to that thought. You see those two characters in Daniel. I think it's chapter 7. pretty sure it's chapter 7. You see the Son of Man, that exalted heavenly agent, receiving power and authority from the Ancient of Days so that the Son of Man in Daniel can rule and reign. What you're going to see right here is the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days become one. Again, an exalted view of Jesus, very much the beginning of what eventually gets called Trinitarian theology. But here in this text, you're going to see this one John's looking at, uh, both being described as the Son of Man from Daniel and the Ancient of Days from Daniel. Son of Man, the Heavenly Agent, and, and the Ancient of Days, God. So anyway, he turns, he sees one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe. This long robe can point you to either royalty, perhaps should point you toward uh, the priestly high robe that the Jewish community would be familiar with, uh, that would have been existing and being in use during the days of the temple. So this Son, son of Man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest, he specifically looks like a high priest at this point. The hairs of his head were white, wisdom, ancient of days, 
uh, wisdom. His, his, the head, hairs of his head are white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees all. He sees through us. He has perfect sight. Flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. We do not have a God who has feet of clay. We have a God who, have, who has feet of burnished bronze, strong, solid foundation. Uh, this, these feet were refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. So there with the, the white, like wool, like snow, if you go back to Daniel 7, that's the Ancient of Days. That's how the Ancient of Days is described. And he's already told you he's son of man. So here in this text, Ancient of Days, God, son of man, the heavenly agent that works on behalf of God, become one. Um, anyway, he has this loud voice like the roar of many waters. I remind you that John is on the Isle of Patmos, an island. Uh, he's probably hearing the roars of the, of, of the Aegean Sea. Uh, verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. From the mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face like the sun shining in full strength. So that's the vision. Uh, and then he goes on to say a little bit more where he says, When I saw him, I fell at the feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one the one who is alive or the one who gives life. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and hell. And then you, you hear him say, write these things that you have seen, those that are, and those that will take place after these things that are. As for the mystery of the seven stars, he tells you those seven stars in his right hand and the seven golden lampstands, what they are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands of the seven churches. Okay, pieces of all that I just read will reoccur in these seven letters. We're only going to look at two of these letters uh, today. One to the church at Ephesus and one to the church uh, at Smyrna. So um, turn over now, we'll keep going in chapter um, 2. There's a form to all of these letters. Basically what you see, there's a little deviation, I'll point out the deviations to you. Uh, there's the address to the angel of the church. We've talked about, when we talked about these angels, the seven angels of the seven churches. Angel just means messenger. Some people say they are the, the, the leaders of the churches. Some people say they are the um, guardian angels of the churches, because we do know from the Bible that um, uh, individuals have guardian angels. We know from the book of Daniel, nations or people groups have guardian angels. So maybe churches have guardian angels. So maybe that's who's being addressed here. Uh, some commentators say it's the ethos, the alter ego of the church. Um, I tend to think they're angels simply because if you, as you read the book of Revelation, every time an angel shows up, guess what it is? It's an angel. So I think these are probably angels, so maybe guardian angels. Uh, of the churches, but um, either one of those works. So you see an address to the angel, um, and you see that then that the angel is um, uh, hearing the words of um, the exalted one. We'll look at that. Then you, you will usually hear words of commendation. The angel will say what the church is doing well. Laodicea, by the way, when we get there, was doing nothing well. They get no, no words of commendation. Uh, but after, in the letter, uh, you hear the commendation of the good things. There's, as you're hearing them, you're almost waiting for the but to show up. 
And the exalted Christ gives you that in all of them, except for two. Except for two. Smyrna and Philadelphia, two other of the seven churches, they evidently don't have anything that Jesus wants to judge at this point. So you have one that has no commendation. You have two that have no um, harsh words of judgment. But typically there's commendation. There's harsh words of judgment um, about what needs to be changed there. And then there's a gospel-like, literally coming from the New Testament synoptics, a gospel-like command to listen to what's being shared. And then there's a great promise at the end of every letter. Uh, particularly the opening words where the one sending the letter is described comes from chapter 1, that vision we just looked at. And usually also the great promise at the end of every letter goes back to chapter 1. So let's look at one of these. Look at the first one, chapter 2, verse 1. Um, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And yes, you've heard that before, chapter 1. That's the exalted one, Jesus, the exalted Christ. And here comes the words of commendation. By the way, it's always a good practice, church. When you're talking to somebody about anything, start off with the affirmation. You know, sometimes we just start off with the criticism. Start off with the affirmation. If you can't do the affirmation, you have no right to offer the criticism. Take that cue from Jesus. He's, he's going to offer some criticisms here to these churches, um, all except Laodicea. He does start off with affirmation. He says, verse 2, I know your works. Greek word ergo there, like energizing. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Those are all good things, by the way. Jesus says, I know those. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles. So obviously, Jesus doesn't think they are, but they call themselves apostles. The word apostle is an important New Testament word. You need to know what that means. Apostle means one thing. Disciple means one thing. Believer means one thing. Christian means one thing. They all don't mean the same. Apostle means one who is sent. Uh, preeminently in the New Testament, one who is sent by Jesus from Jesus. So, uh, you know, if someone's in your midst and they're claiming to be an apostle, your first question is, are they or are they not? Are they sent from Jesus or sent from their own ego or sent from perhaps the dark place? Uh, so an apostle is someone who is sent. Evidently, the church in Ephesus, like all the ancient churches, first century Christian churches, there would have been people who, who had the office of apostle, ones who had been sent um, by Jesus to do a certain task. Evidently, there were some in the midst of the Ephesian church that were saying they were sent, but evidently they are not, because that's why Jesus says to them that, you know, they call themselves apostles, and they are not, and they're found to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So the good thing about the church at Ephesus, we'll talk a little more about Ephesus in a minute. The good thing about the church at Ephesus is they are dealing with false teachers. They're dealing with false apostles. They are standing for orthodoxy. Right, orthodoxy is just a fancy term for right teaching. 
They are standing with right teaching. So Jesus is commending them for that. And they're not growing weary in that. But look at verse 4. I told you there's usually a but. Here's the but. Jesus says, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. I'm sure we all understand you can be as orthodox as the devil. The best theologian I know is probably the devil. He understands more about God than some of us do. But that's not a good thing. He just it's, it's all head knowledge for him. There are people sitting in churches that have all the head knowledge. There are people who know the Bible. It's all head knowledge. You know, um, one of my most influential mentors, professors, he's an archaeologist, he's a historian, he's a linguist, he's an expert in first century Christianity, the roots of Christianity. I learned so much from that man. When I knew him, he had been teaching for about 20 years, he was agnostic. Didn't really believe in this stuff. He knew the history, the language, the context. He knew all that stuff. He could show you where you dig up a shroud this first century outside of Jerusalem, but he was agnostic. It was mostly head knowledge. Um, it, it is, in, in recent years, I had evidently no impact at well. At the time, I had no impact on him. Uh, but in recent years, after I've been long gone from him, uh, his head knowledge has migrated south. And now it's really rather interesting. It didn't migrate completely to receiving of Jesus, except as a great Jew. And he's now a practicing Jew. So he's closer. He's closer than he was uh, when he was, when I was working with him as an archeologist and professor. But what you see with the church in Ephesus, both are important. Orthodoxy, right teaching, and Orthopraxis, another good theological term, right action. You, you may remember Paul saying, though I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I may give my body to be burned, maybe like a martyr, but if I have not love. So you've got to have both sides. You know, orthodoxy is important. I will die on that hill. Love is important. I will die on that hill too. Uh, Christians tend to do better with one or the other. You know, we, we redefine love to such as, we redefine love to mean just an acceptance of anything. And we, we you know, we so love somebody, we'll let them go straight to hell and never tell them otherwise. Amen. Or, you know, we, we know the orthodoxy, but we couldn't care less about the human beings that are around us. You know, I mean, the New Testament is very clear. You've got to keep the two together. The problem with the Ephesian church was they were orthodox. They dealt with the false teachers, the false apostles, that they lost their first love. Now, sometimes, particularly with preachers, I'm sure I've probably done it, uh, a lot of times when we talk about losing our first love, quoting this text, uh, sometimes we talk about it being our first love for Jesus. Uh, that's probably true here, but I think also in the context, it also means the love that they had for each other, uh, which, that shouldn't surprise you. I think the two are closely connected. Don't tell, I mean, I'm quoting John, by the way. Make, I'll make that clear. Don't tell me you love God if you hate your neighbor or hate your brother. The two go hand in hand. So uh, when you read here that where the Ephesians are being chided for losing their first love, it, it, it's probably both, all of the above. 
their love for Christ and their love for their neighbor. If they had appropriate love for Christ, they'd have appropriate love for neighbor. But they've lost that first love, so they're being chided. So um, look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Uh, the church in Ephesus was probably 40 years old by this point. Uh, it was already somewhat in existence when Paul went there. Uh, you can look at Acts, this may be your homework, look at Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 20, you'll see Paul's experience uh, 30 years before this time uh, when he went to Ephesus. Um, Paul actually spent his longest single period of time that he spent anywhere in Ephesus, uh, somewhere between two and a half and three years. That's the longest Paul ever stayed put anywhere. Uh, second longest place he stayed was Corinth, not quite as long as he stayed at Ephesus. But if you go back and read Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 20, you'll see Paul's experience of Ephesus, the city, 30 years prior to them receiving this letter, um, when John the Apostle or John the Revelator at the end of the first century was, was active. Um, and also, if you do your homework and you look at Acts 19 and 20, you may be fascinated by some of the similarities between um, first century, not first century, between the 60s, well, for all oh, it's first century, between the 60s of Paul's day and the 90s of John's day. You may see some similarities. So, John here, Jesus here, uh, is taking them back to the beginning. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Think back to the beginning when they had love for God and Christ and love for neighbor and each other bound together. So he's saying, remember that. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Uh, Jesus loves to talk to us about repentance. Repentance doesn't mean we're really sad. Sometimes we are when we repent. You can, you can repent and not have the least bit of remorse. You can repent and not have the least bit of sadness. Uh, repentance doesn't mean remorse or sadness. That's contrition. Repentance literally means, metanoia in the Greek, literally means just a change of mind. You need to quit your way of thinking. Now, I know the older we get, the harder that becomes. Repentance means you need to quit your way of thinking about whatever, a certain issue maybe, or life in general, and, and turn and go in a different direction. That's what metanoia means in the Greek. That's repentance. So, uh, you, you know, sometimes we think repentance means get really, really emotional and cry a whole lot and then maybe make a turn or a change. You know, if that's what it takes for you to turn or change, more power to you. But you can turn and change without the, the contrition. Contrition may, doesn't have to, but may precede uh, repentance. So notice Jesus saying repent and do the works you did at first. That's the works of love to each other that you did at first. Then he says, um, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Again, back to the lampstand. Remember, I, love, I mentioned to you two weeks ago, I love the image of the lampstand for the church. The lampstand is what you put the lamp on. Lampstand is what you put the lamp on so that light can be shared. Now, if you take the lamp off the lampstand, you just have a piece of furniture. And there are churches around that there's just the piece of furniture. The light's gone. 
And, and the light can get gone, can be removed by Jesus. That's what Jesus said in the church at Ephesus. If you don't repent and change and go back to your first love, um, you know, keeping orthodox teaching and orthopraxis, right behavior to each other, I will come and take it away. You'll just be a stand, but not a lampstand. Um, by the way, let me say this. All seven of these churches are gone today. The next city, the next letter we'll talk about is city of Smyrna. That's the only city that even remains today. Ephesus was a great, great city in its day. I've been to the ruins of Ephesus. It is absolutely amazing. Any of you ever been to the ruins of Ephesus? Good. Did you go with me? You went with yeah. me. Okay. Yes, I remember, Dean. You went with me. Uh, the, the ruins of Ephesus are absolutely amazing. Sort of like, this, for me at least, sort of like the Roman Forum. If you ever been to the ruins of the Roman Forum, sort of like the Roman Forum on steroids. Uh, the, 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 the remains of Ephesus are absolutely amazing and magnificent if you ever get a chance to go there. Um, no city there now, just ruins, but the ruins are amazing. And the ruins pretty, back, pretty much can take you back to the first century, to Paul and John's day. Let me remind you a little bit about Ephesus. Uh, the greatest city, wasn't the capital, but the greatest city in Asia Minor, probably a quarter of a million people, uh, they had um, a great stadium that you can go view part of it now in ruins that would seat about 25,000 people. Uh, they had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And you know this from the book of Acts, particularly if you do your homework this afternoon. Uh, they had the temple to Artemis. Um, Greeks called her Artemis, uh, Latins called her Diana. Uh, they had a massive temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world to that pagan goddess. Um, Ephesus also, in, by the time John comes along, Ephesus has a temple to Augustus Caesar that actually was uh, risen, that was created during the time of Augustus Caesar primarily for Julius. It also had, in John's day, a great temple to Domitian, who was the emperor in John's time. Uh, eventually, there'll be another one built. Um, a, a magnificent city. It was a harbor town. Uh, so therefore, it was very cosmopolitan. The world come and went in Ephesus, which, by the way, that's why Paul stayed there so long. Paul finally figured out he could stay put in a place like Ephesus, and the world passed by him. Same thing for Corinth. That's why he stayed there so long. But Ephesus was a harbor town in the first century. Today, when you go there, one of the main things you will notice, if you've heard me say or any of us say, it was a harbor town, you say, where's the water at? Because now the water's six miles away. Uh, the the Caister River going into the Aegean Sea has silted up over the centuries. Things change. So you can't, you know, if you're way up high in Ephesus and you look in the right direction, you can catch a glimpse of the Aegean Sea, but they're not a harbor town. It's a long time since it's been a harbor town. Uh, but a magnificent city in so many ways. Um, so that you can understand why it became a center of Christian activity. It became such a center of Christian activity in the year 431, um, long time from this New Testament period, a great council 
of Christians were was held there. We we would, particularly in our first seven centuries, we would meet in council, like the Council of Nicaea, to create the Nicene Creed. Uh, we had a massive council meet in 431 to deal with the heresy of Nestorianism. You don't need to know what that is, but I do encourage you to remember there is such a thing as a heresy, false teaching. But the Council of Ephesus in 431, because in 431 it was still it was a Christian town. The Byzantine Empire, it was a Christian town. It stayed that way uh, to the rise of the um, Ottoman Empire. Now all of Turkey is Muslim. Turkey is, which again, all these seven churches were here in John's day. It was the center of Christianity, right? It was the second center of Christianity after Jerusalem and, and that area. It was, it, was, it was one of the primary Christian areas for the first uh, thousand years of the Christian faith. Now it's Muslim and it's 003 to 0.05% Christian. Things can change. You know, people need to kind of keep remembering that too. Um, but it may be providential. Listen to what Jesus say here. Jesus is saying, here's what I like about you. Here's what I've got against you. If you don't repent, if you don't change, if you don't go back to where you started out at, I will come. We need to talk about that word come for a few minutes. He says, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand is gone from Ephesus. It's gone from Turkey. So we need to take very seriously um, what Jesus is saying to these churches here. Um, every church has a birth, and thus far, every church has a death. Every local congregation. Gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Big C, people of Jesus. But every congregation is born and it dies. A little bit of an ex-district superintendent's coming out here. Where I, you know, I, I was with churches that had five people in them. They still didn't think they could die. And that was their total congregation, five people. And I'm like, yeah, your lampstand's on its way out. And it's been on its way out for a long time. Uh, you need to kind of wake up to that. All of these seven churches are gone. The church of Philippi is gone. Church of Corinth is gone. Um, so churches need to...